are you interested in the different meanings and implementations for smart cities from different viewpoints? What do you think about the solutions smart cities could provide? How can we bridge the gap between the different approaches? Stay tuned for answers from Gavin Kotarir, Bridget Angler, Luke Hausgo, Daniel Prohaski, and Lily Ryan. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? Then this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. This episode is the first panel discussion where I invited back previous interviewees to answer some questions together and let them discuss the different viewpoints. The panelists were Gavin Kotaril, Bridget Angler, Luke Hausgo, Daniel Prohaski and Lily Ryan. You will hear the research seminar recording of the Smart Cities Research Institute at Swinburne University of Technology, starting with a proper introduction. As a consulting director within the Cohesive Group's Asia-Pacific Digital Practice, Gavin Cotterial helps large private infrastructure and government organizations in transforming them from an analog organization to a data-driven organization by adopting building information modeling, geospatial, IoT, and digital twin technologies. Gavin's passion for a digital future for our cities and built environment sees him involved in several initiatives such as co-chairing the Smart Cities Council, Digital Twin Task, group and assisting Standards Australia Smart City Standards Reference Group. Bridget Angler is a senior lecturer teaching across strategic foresight, design and innovation in Swinburne University's business school. She has 30 years industry experience in brand, design and innovation strategy and holds master degrees in strategic foresight and women's studies. Bridget's work focuses on the potential of design and futures to tackle challenges facing people, culture and systems. And her research interests include post-growth innovation, the unintended consequences of design and embedding futures literacy in design and innovation. Luke Yusengo is an enterprise architect with a focus on data, information, knowledge, and artificial intelligence. Luke develops data and technology strategies and manages data governance for Australian enterprises and the Victorian government. He also provides innovation research services in swarm intelligence, graph AI, and cryptocurrency. Luke is the principal architect of a future city project that combines cryptocurrency, swarm intelligence, and smart data. Daniel Prohaski is an architecture engineer and roboticist passionate about translating research towards industry adoption in Australia, particularly in the building design and construction industry. He is also the founding lecturer in architecture engineering at Swinburne University and was Swinburne's 2019 Design Faculty Innovation Fellow to further develop his innovative advanced manufacturing venture CurveCrete. He is the CEO and co-founder of CurveCrete, an advanced manufacturer and robotics development company with a focus on elegant, low-carbon construction. And Lily Ryan is a lead security specialist at ThoughtWorks and also serves on the board of Digital Rights Watch. Lily has delivered presentations across the globe on web application security, privacy education, and the history of technology-related issues. You can catch her talking security on the OWASP DevSlop show or occasionally having opinions on Byte Intuit. So let's start with the foundational question. What does the smart city mean to you? Let's start with Gavin. We have ISO standards that define smart city. So in terms of defining, we have a definition already in place. I think from my perspective, it's in terms of understanding, first of all, why do we need a smart city? It's around how information and data combined with technology can help support better outcomes and better delivery for people and services. From my perspective today, we haven't really seen that come into fruition. 
a lot of smart city initiatives have been very much point solutions here in this region. So whether we focus on smart bins, smart lights, smart parking, that's not enough in my mind. A lot of councils, cities have done a lot of investment in this area but are still struggling in terms of with data to be siloed in those areas. So for me, we need to harness information and technology to provide better services. And by just concentrating on these point solutions, we're not going to necessarily meet that. So for me, not necessarily defining what is a smart city, it's really thinking about what is the problem we're trying to solve and how information and technology can provide that. So yeah, keen to discuss this further with the panel in terms of understanding about what's the problem we're trying to solve and what do we need to do with information technology to provide better outcomes and services for the public. Bridget, what does smart city mean to you? I'm going to say yes to a lot of that. And I'm also going to build a little bit on your last point, Gavin. I think there's a great question around what problem we're trying to solve with all of this data and technology, but I would reframe it as what are the futures we're trying to create by relying on concepts and constructs such as a smart city and data and technology being what we live and breathe by. I have a number of concerns around what the smart city means and that diversity of meaning. And that's great because people can interpret it and they can construct as they wish. However, that has longer term consequences based on the decisions we make around data collection, whether it is a smart bin or building into more of that sentient city concept. For me, smart cities are, a I don't necessarily think that they mean much. Luke, what do you think about the smart city? I particularly like Bridget's last statement there. I think if you step it back, what is a city? So our way of looking at a city is it's an emergent ecosystem that happens within space-time. And then it's then a question about what are all those emergent systems that make up that ecosystem that create this construct of the city. And I think that in one way of looking at it, all cities are smart. Cities only exist as an artifact of technology, as an artifact of um, human society. And then it's a question of where on that scale of smart or where on that scale of civilization. Do we draw the line for a smart city? It sort of becomes a, or a classification system. It's not really a statement about a particular set of technologies or a particular set of behaviours or, or things, but it's a classification. And I think that's where Gavin was getting to that with the ISO standard. There's some standard definitions. I'm a little bit allergic to standards. A lot of my sort of job in life is to defeat standards and to take alternative views on things. But, you know, it's good to have some common language. There is an importance in standards and that they do serve a purpose and utility, but I don't think that that means that's what something is. It's a indication of what something is understood as at the moment. So an emergent ecosystem at a point in time, it becomes more reflective of the sort of um, intelligence and evolution of a society and the technologies that it uses. The cities that we have and the problems that we have are reflective of our society. If I get the chance to today, I'll probably end up speaking a lot about governance because I think that's the major issue with smart cities. It's how decisions are made and just as importantly, who is making the decisions. And I think that is the core of the problem that you have here for your statement about is why don't we have smart cities? And I think the wrong people are in charge. Danielle, what does smart city mean to you? All fantastic points. Everyone's going to bring such a diverse insight into what this really means. From my perspective, maybe building on Gavin's thinking about data flow and trying to define what the problem is that we're actually solving with the smart city. To me, it's looking at resource efficiency, but to you know, achieve a high standard of living or create a fun or exciting environment to be within a city. How can all of this technological development support that in some way? And I think 
one of the challenges that we have is, well, to make an efficient city tends to want to be more dense, but then livability standards essentially drops because of that densification. So how do we think about this idea of a smart city where these elements of the city can be more local or in a distributed network rather than centralized? and start to not require so much density, you know, if that makes sense. So it's really this challenge between density, resource efficiency, and then improving the living standard. And Lily, what does smart city mean to you? I think everybody, I mean, as everyone said, they're all great points. For me, most of the time when I end up discussing smart cities, it's in the context of what the public thinks a smart city is. And a lot of that has to do with the way that digital technology is integrated into our civic environments. And this often comes back to things that other people have mentioned, like smart bins and smart lighting. But the thing that most people want to talk to me about is also the way in which it increases the ways that we are surveilled automatically in using those civic environments and how we go about doing that, how we go about implementing digital technology in a way that benefits people without subjecting them to increasing amounts of surveillance and also in a way that they're able to consent to. Because rolling things out, such as facial recognition cameras, for example, or biometric scanners in other public environments or environments that are considered public, like shopping centers and things like that, tends to be something that people cannot meaningfully opt out of. And so what I'm really interested in is how we strike a balance between making the best use of the technology that's available to us to improve standards of living for everybody and how we can do that without reinforcing a lot of norms or turning it into a police state. What are the biggest obstacles, as you mentioned, some of them already, of communicating action-inducing insights and information across the different sectors like academia, policy, and industry? My experience has been often that folks just aren't speaking to each other across disciplines as often as they should in developing these things, and that we're all having lots of really good conversations within our peer groups, but we aren't mixing it up enough between ourselves to really get that cross-sectional view of what we all mean by it. I think that the definitions that we've all just given are a pretty good example of the ways that people can look at it in different ways. And I know you've selected this panel because we've all got various diverse opinions about what a smart city is and how it should look. But the main obstacles are that we aren't always having this, that range of voices in the room when decisions get made. That's my view at any rate. I agree uh, very strongly with uh, what Lily's saying there. It's the knowledge and insight silos. And I think partly it's the disciplines, but it's also partly we have our own sort of inherent cognitive biases as well. So independent of whatever discipline we have, we see things a certain way from a range of things from our life experience and who and what we are. And that drives certain ways of perceiving things and that affects who we connect to and share information with. And I think that that creates a sort of um, an emergent property effect, uh, not within a um, discipline, but also how we then share and propagate that knowledge. And that creates then groups of people who make decisions about things that will bias in certain directions. I know you've done a conscious effort to put together this panel to have diversity opinion, but often you get the opposite effect. And often for governance structures, you know, you'll select people with, with similar life outlooks as what you have, even though they've got different disciplines. You will tend to create sort of reinforcement of particular perspectives. So I think that, that diversity in, in the governance representations are important. To Luke's original point around governance. I think from from is a really important component because what we find typically in smart city initiatives that, that happen are from different departments and in terms of it could be whether it's in the IT department, it could be in economic development, 
there's not a consistency and that that governance perspective isn't in place. And then typically it's focused around providing a point solution. So understanding pedestrian count, pollution, use space, utilisation, parking, et cetera. It sits with a silo within a silo. What we're actually seeing now moving forward into a new area around digital twin for cities, we're lucky enough we're developing business case work for cities and state governments, New South Wales, Victoria, and doing some work with other cities like Hobart and Melbourne is around how digital twin actually visualizes, integrates and connects these different data sets. And what we're starting to see now is business case work for funding to deliver that. And I think what we haven't seen previously with smart city programs is that there hasn't been those holistic business case work to actually deliver a series program, a roadmap of activities that is joined up to provide the outcomes of strategic objectives of cities. Because the reality is that any digital strategy or plan or business case needs to inform whatever strategic objective that that cities or or governments or state governments have. So I think for me, that's really important that in terms of the, the smart digital twin, whatever you want to brand it, needs to inform on the strategic objectives of the city. So if that's tourism, economic development, investment, et cetera. So for me, that's really important in terms of you have that holistic approach and have that executive buy-in. And it's not a bottom-up initiative, but it's a top-down initiative that is driving those strategic objectives. Otherwise, you're struggling to drive value and benefit and you're just creating what we would call infobesity which is just more data than you can actually deal. Just really want to jump in on that. I agree so much, uh, Gavin, with what you're saying. I think the simplest thing for me is there's actually a lack of architecture in smart cities. A lot of my engagement in a lot of smart city things, people have looked at me like I'm crazy. Why would we need an architect involved? And like, and I'm coming not from a physical architecture, but from an enterprise strategic sort of architecture basis. They don't understand. We're doing a, as you keep pointing, smart bin solution. Why do you need a strategic architect? There's a lack of architecture in smart cities. I'm hearing a lot of stuff around architecture and infrastructure and business cases. And I'm wondering where the people and the generations that are not being heard who are going to live in these cities where are in this discussion. My concern is always that we have structures, principles, constructs like smart city imposed on us by whoever makes the decisions and that they seem to exist in a normalized or normative Western developed model. So the imaginings of the smart city of the global North are influencing parts of the world that are not really confined within that kind of framework. And I think everything you've said is right and true and necessary and needs to be considered. For me, however, I am concerned about, and I am actually concerned about what this looks like and what this experience is for people who are being born now. So there are voices or futures who are not heard in this debate. Are we asking people whether they want smart cities or are we simply looking at the available technology and what are visions or futures that we think are things we should aspire to? Where are those preferred futures in this discussion? I don't mean our discussion, I mean that global discussion, because when we talk about we, we have to be clear about who that we is. There is no one global we. That's pretty clear from the situation around the world at the moment. And we are making decisions that will sit. I mean, I'm sitting in a building that was built in what, the 70s or something, looks like it anyway. And that's not an indictment on the building. It's simply that this is a building that has legacy. And what are those legacies from the things that we are talking about creating now? Because if they're not likely to exist in usable form for five to 10 years, what are the conditions that we're designing into? And what are the conditions that we're creating along the way? 
we need to clarify who's defining the vision and what problems we're trying to solve. But, well, in order to figure out what problems we need to solve, we need to have some vision that we're trying to move towards on a city scale, which is an incredibly complex task, especially when talking about governance structures and things, how you navigate that. And it can't just be a singular vision. It's got to be <laughs> taken into consideration. You know, on the city scale, it's going to take maybe a generation to shift and then it's going to affect the people that are just coming into existence now. Such a complex thing. And I think maybe an approach to this would be to look, what's the multi-generational vision? You know, can we create a task force around how we define that vision for multiple generations and throw a pebble into the distance and come back to what we do now? Once we have that type of roadmap, like Kevin was alluding to, then people can figure out where to fit in within that story from the different industries and from their own perspectives to contribute to it. I think if there's a way to establish something like that, we could work together a bit more. Things you throw in there, Bridget, I quite like. Some of my natural state is I'm quite allergic to it, but um, it, I actually quite like it. I think there's a necessity of voice into the governance from the future that needs to speak into governance. And I think a mechanism for that. But I think that's partly a reflection of how mature governance is. And the fact that we don't have that at the moment is a reflection of the lower maturity. So that, I just like that as one thing. I think the other thing to be conscious of is that the future and change are both non-consensual. They happen, whether you like it or not. So it's really how we respond to it is the choice that we have. We can respond to it well or prepare for it well. And that's really the difference where the thinking that you're throwing in really adds a lot. Kind of, although I'd argue that everything we do in the present leads us down a particular path towards a future. So yes, change happens, but we can actually influence it. We've stopped using plastic bags in supermarkets, even though everyone said that would be impossible. So that's where governance and mechanisms like that are useful. I think for me, there's a more fundamental question around, do we have cities in 20 years? It's a genuine question. Do we really have cities in 20 years? Do we have them in 100 years? If we do, where are they? What do they need? And so on. Because that's actually what we're really talking about. And you are 100% right that we have to deal with change. Instead of just anticipating, can we actually say, well, as we anticipate, like anticipatory systems, can we respond in ways that shape us to where we want to get to as opposed to where we will inevitably end up? I think there's the poor and unprepared response where change is much more brutal and unforgiving as opposed to a prepared response where we can consider a lot more and that we can have more nuance in how we are ready for it. I know that from my perspective, I'm often in receipt of complaints and opinions and thoughts about what people are saying about smart cities in the way that they are being implemented now. And as I said before, it goes back to the public's idea of what a smart city is, which often has to do with the inclusion of digital technology in civic spaces. And that feedback, it seems to go in cycles of just people saying they're not comfortable with the way that things are going, not really feeling like they can do anything about it. And it kind of goes on from there. It is something that's very interesting to think about, though, because I know that there is always going to be an element of people who don't like something. You're never going to get 100% agreement on something. And also that the feedback you get, the negative feedback is always going to be loudest. I mean, if you've ever read any Yelp reviews, that is how it goes. People are more likely to write a negative one when they don't like something then be motivated to write a positive one. But it does make me wonder where the spaces are for people to have those kinds of inputs into the things that are being discussed and formed now and how that works while we're talking about it. Because yes, future generations are not always in a position to tell us right now what they want. 
particularly those who are born now, probably not capable of understanding and articulating that for a few years. But the feedback that we do get right now from initiatives that are being announced and branded as smart city initiatives are not always positive and not always addressed. And it is a hard question to understand how people can consent to these things. It's right that change is not consensual, but as Bridget says, we do have the opportunity to shape it. Where we're making those decisions, though, is an interesting question. Then what are the biggest problems you see to achieve the best possible future? And how or whether can smart city at all help with them? I don't have a position on one particular future. I am interested in those alternative futures, ones that are respectful, that allow for change, help us build our individual capacity to respond as things happen. However, I say that knowing that our different value sets and different beliefs and ways of being in the world will influence that as well. What I think is utopia might be someone else's dystopia and vice versa. And I'm not the first person to say that. I do think that we need deeper discussions around the implications of this. If we look back, and sometimes looking back is an easier way to start thinking forward. We look back at stuff and see what didn't work and learn from that. And when I say look back, 10 years, 20 years, 2000 years, macro history can serve us well. It's important that we consider and take responsibility for the decisions we make. Put it this way, Wakanda looks great, but I don't necessarily have a vision of a future. I'm old enough to realize that whatever I might want to manifest and be part of creating might not come to fruition. And I think that's the other side, that darker side of smart cities is what are we setting up in terms of powering them and maintaining them? If we know that we have limits on some of our natural resources that we might need to support and see the continuation of some of the technologies we talk about, lithium, for example, what happens then? And I think this plays into the area around curve creep as well, knowing that you know, we've got a finite amount of stuff And what are the decisions we make around those futures that are not just about drawing more and more out of this planet? No, I think just in addition to that, I think some of the big challenges that we have is leadership. I think the very fact that we're here in 2022 and we're still talking about smart cities is evidence through that lack of leadership. I've been lucky enough to be here in Australia for 17 years doing strategic advisory work alongside many. And what I find fascinating is the fact that there are senior leaders within, doesn't necessarily have to be governments, whether it's local, state or private sector as well, is that, that lack of digital leadership, that lack of data leadership. And I find that really baffling to me that in terms of how leaders within organizations don't still understand the value of data and how it can help inform their decision making. So for example, one of our clients in the UK, we're working with Highways England and they've actually put their data on the balance sheet. So people have to report back onto that too. So they're actually seeing that as a resource, as an asset to actually that has a tangible number. So we're still going to struggle We're still going to have these same conversations about smart cities, digital twin, unless we have effective leadership in terms of that you get investment into actually doing stuff, not just playing around the edges and having some bespoke investment to put some sensors on a light or whatever. So for me, how do we breed future leaders in terms of this digital leadership? My kids grown up as their digital natives, that they completely understand how they have experiences with their phones in terms of how do we have experiences through the devices. For me, the biggest challenge moving forward is having that leadership. Some of the more progressive companies that we work with have that leadership 
they get it, they understand, but that's not the norm. So how do we get our current leaders and future leaders' understandings of the value of information and data to support their decision-making wherever they sit? So for me, unless we make that, we do that together and Something we just launched this week, the Digital Twin Partnership, by bringing industry leaders together to help provide a leadership and advocacy position to government because individuals are working with organisations or governments. But for me, it needs to bring together all facets of the private sector and academia to help provide that leadership. And for me, we've been too sporadic in the 17 years that I've been here in this country. We need to work together in terms of not one sector or not one part has all the solutions, but bringing together has that. And for me, that requires that leadership. So for me, it's how do we educate our current and future leaders, I think is the biggest challenge. I like what you're saying there, Gavin, but I also have the view that a, a society ends up having the leaders that it deserves. So I think that part of the problem is actually much deeper in structure than just who we've got as our leaders and their education or experience levels. I actually talk about this quite regularly. I just use some basic facts. So when I was in high school, there was two future captains of the Australian cricket team in the high schools that I was at. There was also Julian Assange, and there was also myself and a few other nerds. The nerds had no support, no social infrastructure, nothing, and our careers just sort of fizzled along and some of us did okay and all that sort of thing. And Julian became famous and all that sort of stuff and now got other issues. But the captains of the cricket teams, they had a streamlined career where it was just bang, 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 success, success, success. Yes, a lot of people didn't make it, including many of my friends on the same career track, et cetera. But society recognized it from a very young age. They had recognition and support, all these sorts of things. And society achieved it. And Australia is known around the world as being a nation that has great sports people. So I think our problem is a lot deeper than just who we've got as leaders in the space. I think it's a social, it's a societal level problem. What's the media doing about it? What are we as a society doing about it? I think it's something deep and intrinsic is the, the, the root cause. Your voice is breaking a lot, Gavin, just FYI, but I'm hearing some of your points you're making. There needs to be some action there. There needs to be a bit of soul searching, I think, in Australian society to come to a recognition that actually our society needs to change because we are going to become the banana republic. We are going to become the rednecks of Southeast Asia. We're going to fall behind if we don't adapt our priorities as a nation. We already have to a large degree, in my opinion. If I go back to a digital twin in terms of narrative or a systems of a system thinking, and this is not an isolated problem that we have. And a lot of things in terms of why people get frustrated and they roll their eyes. You talk about a smart city because it can become quite nebulous and quite ethereal and not tangible. And if you ask 20 people in the street what a smart city is, you'd probably get 20 different answers. I would. I kind of don't care what most people's answer is because I've got such a strength of my own opinion, but I'm happy to listen to them, of course. Again, it's a different way of looking at it, different pro standards versus your own set of definitions. I think that for it to really succeed, one of the things we haven't really spoken about much is transparency. We've spoken a lot about leadership and governance structures and all of that kind of thing. But the people who are going to be subject to the smart city as it exists now in whatever form that that is and whatever that means to you, and as it exists in the future in all of the ways that we're speaking about, it is going to impact the public. And when we're talking about data gathering in order to make decisions, I hear all day from people who are heartily sick of data gathering in their everyday lives because they know that it has been used and weaponized against them in a lot of ways, mostly to advertise to them, but also to police them, also to surveil them in other ways, also to stop certain types of behavior and the behavior that 
we want to encourage or don't want to encourage that gets arbitrarily decided. So I think if we're talking about understanding the power of data, we also need to understand the power of data to cause harm and what that means when we roll it out in public spaces to be gathered in lots of different ways and how we communicate with people about it and what kind of options that we give them. Because whether or not change is something that we can consent to, there are certainly things about it that we can shape. And if we're not actually telling people what we're doing, or we're not being clear with them about what we're doing, we're making certain assumptions about their levels of understanding. That's something where we are ultimately not going to succeed, I think. And that's not necessarily a smart city thing. I think it's more of a type of civil society that the smart city lives within thing. Because you can have a smart city in China would be very different to a smart city, say, in London, because of the governing rules, norms, policies, the whole concept of consent, of collection of data and use of data, et cetera, would be quite different. Both smart cities will work, but then it's where that what is the governing structures, what is the policy, what is the rules of being a city that's actually that, that surround it. That's I think where you're going. Yeah. Is that, is that right? I guess my question is, you know, both would work, but they would yeah. work for whom, I guess. Honestly, I'm not really sure I see that much difference between, say, London and Beijing. London is the most surveilled city in the world already. It's just a matter of how honest we are about it with ourselves, I think. And right now, let me jump in because we are running out of time. And although this could go on and on for hours, I would like to give the opportunity to the audience and ask my lovely professor, Jenny Pei, to ask us the audience questions up until now. Uh, We've got a few audience questions that have been building up during the discussion. The first one, which asks, what's the difference between a cognitive city and a smart city? Is anybody willing to handle that? None. Okay, easy answer. Okay, another thing that came up was you were talking about whether we're communicating across centres. Why is there no incentive to talk across sectors that these initiatives seem very siloed and that this is resulting in a failure of collaboration between the kinds of people who might be needed to collaborate to solve these big problems? The premise of the question, I think, is actually incorrect. There is smart cities and they are happening and they've got nothing to do with government. Amazon is doing a fantastic job of setting up smart cities. Whether you love it or not, it's a freight train that's hitting us and it's hitting us hard and people don't realise it. People installing Amazon devices all through their houses, everywhere. It's got this data scraping coming left, right and centre. They've got AI bots running over the top of it and they're getting lots of insight taken over your world. And we're here talking about academic standards. Another question is, is a smart city vision static or dynamic? Just based on the conversation we've been having now, I'd say it's fairly dynamic. And kind of has to be. (laughs) Okay, the next question, I think this is going to be aimed at you, Bridget. If the current generation that feel that what we're doing is incorrect, then how can they decide for the next generation who will then also probably find what they're deciding not correct for the next generation? So we've got this rolling thing of who decides for whoever's coming. That's one of the paradoxes of the future. The question is what we will feel we want to be responsible for in creating, and that will come down to that those differences in perspectives and values. Everything has been said about smart cities and data scraping and all of that stuff. For me, that makes smart cities an unfulfilled promise with a whole load of potential. I just don't want it to go the way of the metaverse. Whatever that is. Exactly. And we have a question. One of the most critical concerns of residents living in a smart city, and this relates to the last discussion, is privacy protection and collection and usage of their personal data. So is there a global standard or a governing body to set up these privacy standards or policies for a smart city? Yes, it's called rule of law. And if you want that further encoded, you need to talk to your uh, politicians and get them to pass laws. We haven't done that, not really well. 
To add to that, I think that one of the things that we need to be looking at is not necessarily developing a standard or a framework or anything like that, but actual consequences for things that transgress whatever boundaries we've decided. I think that's one thing we've seen a lot with artificial intelligence more broadly. There are so many ethics frameworks out there, you could nearly drown in them. The number of them that have any teeth is insignificant. Anyone else like to comment on that? I will. And it's kind of going back to the question you just asked me, that there are ways of engaging people in the conversations. And there are specific tools called an impact wheel, which allow us to go through a process of exploring and trying to understand the things that we might need to anticipate. But we have to give over to those processes. We have to give them the time and we have to accept that it's time now and in futures. Is there anyone else in the audience who would like to ask a question by raising your hand? We now have the opportunity for you to ask a live question. So I've dealt with the questions that have been put in the chat so far. So this question relates to Bridget, your answer now and the response from Luke. Do you honestly think that Amazon are going to give in to what Bridget has just stated around that engagement? Because remember, Amazon is collecting the data for purely one thing that they can make a buck and they can sell stuff to you. It's worse than that. Amazon is a paperclip maximizer in AI speak. So Amazon is an unstoppable force that will take over the planet if we don't stop it. But then so are most companies. So the question is, how do we get from there to the concept that Bridget is talking about with that engagement to make sure that it's not those people who the government engage with at a top level, the businesses, but the actual citizens of the country to benefit that? It's not yeah. philosophical. It's very real. And the reality of it is that while we're running around in circles, the unstoppable train is still keep moving ahead. And we're less and less, in Bridget's perspective in particular, we're less and less prepared for that future. I think some of it's done to us, some of us as individuals. So we are individuals in a collective. So we don't have to be individualists. We can make decisions that have an impact. So don't buy stuff that's delivered by Amazon. You'll find an alternative or you'll live without it. Change your browser. Think about how you log into things and what you give over to. There is an element of individual responsibility for the decisions that we make. And that may sound really small, but actually it can have a big impact. At a macro level, there's also the ongoing discussion that has been had in many parts for many ends about whether companies like Amazon should really be allowed to exist the way that they do. We've had this conversation before, and like anything, it goes in cycles. Whether we are allowing companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google to continue the way they are, or to break them up, to make them smaller, to nationalize them, to regulate them, to make sure that they are subject to the same kinds of laws that has enabled society to function up to the point that it has. Because if we don't do that, or we don't start talking about it seriously, then they're going to continue doing whatever they can do. And they're richer than God. Nobody can stop them. I very strongly agree. But the question back is, who's going to stop them? Politicians can't stop them because politicians are influenced, paid for, etc. I don't mean paid as necessarily as in bribed, but there is... Oh, it could be bribed. Sometimes they are, but there's other <laughs> ways of influencing policy development, etc. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Money's a function yeah. of that. And they have it. They sure do. It does require a lot of governance, strong political action and advocacy. Yeah. So my view on this is the same way that you know, liberal democracies evolved was they evolved out of warfare. There was an unstoppable you know, brutal warlord who was stopped by another unstoppable brutal warlord. And they just decided eventually got to the point of let's create a more efficient system than having to go to war each time. Voila, liberal democracies. Fast forward quite a lengthy period of time. That's, I think, what will hopefully end up happening here. But at the moment, we have unstoppable data warlords. 
Okay, we have time for one more question. Well, we've been talking about smart cities and all the issues of data, but where does sustainability fit into all of this? Are we losing sight of the whole sustainability goal? It comes back to that long-term vision, like looking into 100 years, 1,000 years from now, how are we actually going to use our resources and mapping that out in some way. So how do we distribute our resources and use data to facilitate that challenge of understanding it all on that time scale? And I want to make another point before we run out of time is everything tends to, in this discussion, I feel is coming back to leadership. The thing that I want to say about that is that we need a safe platform for people to lead. If you have of society that encourages people to speak up differently with a different opinion, with multiple viewpoints considered, then we can actually define some vision that works for the majority. We spoke about in Australia differences between different countries, and it doesn't feel like a safe place to lead necessarily in Australia because the media tends to focus on those negatives. So I think something that, that's happening now with the younger generations is that particularly in engineering, for instance, uh, within Swinburne, we're starting to introduce you know, soft skills, leadership skills, management skills through their education experience. So it's not just about learning about the technicalities of things, much more focused about actually training people to lead. And I think this is a really good point to stop the conversation. So each and every one of us has a choice and has the opportunity to lead. I would like to thank everyone for your time spent with us. And thank you, Fanny, for running this session so well and for getting these amazing guests invited along. So from the Smart Cities Research Institute, we thank you for running this session for us. It was really interesting to hear the different aspects of the questions. Gavin gave his views about digital twins in episode 75. Bridget talked about foresight planning in episode 21. Luke expressed his views on data and information in episode 15. Daniel described his practical approach in episode 6. And Lily argued for better privacy in episode 63. You can find out more about the panelists online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding the panelists' approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this panel discussion? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. Additionally, I will highly appreciate if you consider subscribing. I hope this was an interesting discussion for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?